and be gone for such a long time. Thank you for the flowers that you sent uh, and for all the prayers for Kelly's grandmother and for her family. Please continue to, to pray for them as they continue to deal with the passing of Kelly's grandmother. One of my favorite all-time kids shows, Walt Disney's Chicken Little. If you've not seen it, you are surely missing out on cinematic excellence. I mean, it is one of the best shows ever. Um, now, how many of you came to church thinking, I bet my preacher's going to talk about Chicken Little today. I mean, that's just not something you'd expect. But the movie revolves around a, a little chicken named Chicken Little. One day, Chicken Little started a panic in the small town of Oakey Oaks by ringing the school bell and crying out that the sky was falling. And eventually, the, the people of Oakey Oaks came down and were able to get him calmed down enough to ask him what was going on. And he, he explained to them that a, a piece of the sky shaped like a stop sign had fallen and hit him on the head while he was under the big oak tree in the town square. Unfortunately, upon further investigation, they could not find a piece of the sky shaped like a stop sign. But they did find an acorn that fell. And so everyone started to say that an acorn had fallen on his head and Chicken Little had just gotten a little carried away. His father, Buck Clock, assumed that he was kind of a, a sad little kid that had made some mistakes and it was kind of an embarrassment. And it, this caused Chicken Little to become the laughing stock and the running joke of the town. Now, you would think something like this would bring our little hero down, but not so. Chicken Little knew a secret. The secret he knew is that today is a new day. Yesterday may have been bad, but today is a new day. He may have blown it yesterday, but today is a new day. He may have made a huge mistake yesterday, but today is a new day. He may have been the laughingstock of the town yesterday, but today is a new day. Now, I absolutely love Chicken Little's attitude, and I'm convinced that's the same attitude that we as believers ought to have. Because let's be honest, there's times when believers blow it. Right? I mean, there's times when we blow it huge. We look at something on the Internet we shouldn't look at. We talk about people to others when we shouldn't. We yell and scream at people on the road. We treat our waiter or waitress poorly. We lie to get out of something. We, we treat our spouses in, in ways that hurt their relationship. We treat our children in ways that, that cause them to lose respect for us. We, we do things and we even blow it in our relationship with God. And after we blow it, we begin to wonder, now what do I do? As Bob Thomas would say, we're sitting around in a big ditch of a mess. And it's all of our making. Our mistakes, our actions, our attitudes, our sins have brought us to this place. And now what do we do? Now, some will stay in their ditch of a mess. And they rightly feel guilty about the sins they've committed, the things that they've done. And so they just stay there feeling bad. Who am I to ever try to get up out of this ditch of a mess? And we feel so badly. Now, Satan knows how to use these times to his advantage. Trust me when I say he wants you to stay there. He wants you to stay in your ditch of a mess. He wants you to think that you're too far gone for God to ever lift you up and carry you through. That God is through with you. That He's had enough. That you've blown it one too many times. And this time, God is through. He'll tell us whatever He needs to tell us in order to keep us in our ditch of a mess. Now, chances are you know what I'm talking about. 
Because unless you are very unlike me, you have been there at one point or another in your life. Chances are some that are in here today are in that place right now. Right now, you're in a ditch of a mess and you don't know what to do. Right now, you have messed things up in your family and you don't know how to fix it. Right now, things are in disarray in your life. And really, when you're honest with yourself, you know that it's all your fault. Life hasn't conspired to be mean to you. People aren't trying to hurt you. You have done it. You have made poor decisions. And now you don't know what to do. Do you stay in your ditch of a mess or do you try to get up? We ought to do is we should remember what Chicken Little knew. Today is a new day. I'm going to look, we're going to look today at a passage that will show you what it means to us that today is a new day. Open your Bible to the book of Lamentations in the Old Testament. Lamentations chapter 3, verse 21. It's page 624 in your pew Bibles. And when you find that, I'll ask you to stand to honor the reading of God's Word. Lamentations 3 and 21, the prophet Jeremiah writes, This I recall to mind, therefore I have hope. Though the Lord's mercies, or through the Lord's mercies, we are not consumed because His compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in Him. The title of the message today is, Today is a New Day. Let's pray. Our Father, we love You. We praise You, God, for Your greatness and goodness. We praise You, God, for the opportunity we have to gather and to study Your Word. And, Lord, to learn about how we should react when we get ourselves into this a ditch of a mess, God. For God, we've, we've all done it at one point in our lives. We may be there right now. But God, it is so important for us to know that you haven't given up on us. That you aren't disgusted with us. That you do want to lift us up. And God, that you will lift us up out of that. So as we look at this passage today, renew our hope in you. Renew our certainty of your grace and your goodness. God, draw us ever closer to you and, and, and just let us be in awe of your goodness and your love and your grace and your mercy toward us. Father, we need you in this so very badly. Lord, we, we live in a fallen world where sinful temptations are all around. We, we struggle with our sinful nature that is within us and we blow it so many times in so many ways. And God, there is an enemy that wants to keep us in that, that keep us in that condition. But Lord, that is not you, and that is not your desire. So speak to us through your word today. Encourage us through it. Draw us closer to you, we ask in Jesus' precious name. Amen. You may be seated. Lamentations was written by the prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah was a prophet just before and just after the, the first part of Israel's captivity in Babylon. Jeremiah was known as the weeping prophet because it broke his heart to see the people of God live in ways that were contrary to God, knowing the, the punishment and the judgment that would surely come upon them. Jeremiah did what all the prophets did during his ministry. He went and he told the people, you're wrong. What you're doing is sin. You need to turn back to God and keep the covenant that you made with him. Follow God. Abandon these false gods. Cut back and cut away from your sin and do the things that you know God wants you to do. And he told them that if you don't, God will send judgment. This was part of what the prophet did. God, the prophet reminded them that the covenant of God had blessings and cursings. And if you 
do the things that the law said, there were blessings that God promised to pour out upon you. But if you abandoned the law and you turned from God, well, then there were consequences that came from that. Well, the people didn't really want to hear all of that. And so they turned to false teachers that told them, you're okay. I'm okay. Everybody's okay. God's just pretty pleased that you're here. God is okay with your sin. It's not that big of a deal. Things have changed since the time of Moses. Don't feel bad. You can't help it. It's all going to be fine. Well, now the people were given two choices. One that required them to turn from their sin and one that confirmed them in their sin. Well, as many in our day do, they, they went to the one that confirmed them in their sin. They ignored Jeremiah. They, they ridiculed Jeremiah at times. They even imprisoned Jeremiah. But time would prove Jeremiah to be the one that was telling the truth. For the day came when God did send judgment upon his people. And the judgment came in the form of the Babylonians who surrounded Jerusalem, attacked them, tore down the walls, killed many of the people, tore down the palace, tore down the temple, carried away many into, into Babylonian captivity and left the others there to kind of tend what was left of the surrounding countryside. But it really wasn't going to be theirs to keep. Left them there with basically nothing. And, and this all is recorded in the book of Jeremiah. And when we get to the book of Lamentations, it takes place right after the destruction. Right after Jerusalem has fallen. And Jeremiah is lamenting all that has happened. People are destroyed. The temple, the glory of God on earth is gone. People have been plundered. They have been taken away. Jerusalem is nowhere near the glorious city it was in the time of Solomon. It is now in the midst of rubbles and ruin. And it's in the midst of this that Jeremiah pens these words in chapter 3. And one of the things I like to do when I prepare a sermon is I tend to like to look at what other guys have said about a passage. Maybe see if they have something really profound or interesting to say that would be helpful to me. And as I was looking at the, the stuff on this one, I read the titles of some of the messages. And the titles were things like Hope and Tragedy, When Tragedy Strikes, Looking to God During Times of Tragedy. And on and on they went about tragedy of what happened in Jerusalem. But when I think of a tragedy, I think of things like Hurricane Katrina, the tsunami in Japan, or the tornado and more. In my mind, a tragedy is a disastrous event that, that really is just a part of the circumstances of life, just part of the way the world we live in happens. And it's not because someone has done something wrong. It is not a response to someone's circumstances. And if you take that view of tragedy, then what had happened to Jerusalem was not a tragedy. It was all their fault. It wasn't a tragedy the city was destroyed. It was their fault the city was destroyed. It wasn't a tragedy the temple of God had been pillaged and burned. It was their fault the temple of God had been pillaged and burned. For years they had rebelled against God. For years, God had called them back to follow His law, turn from their wicked ways, and for years they had said, no thank you. We like what we're doing. 
They were harvesting what they had planted. They were reaping the consequences of their actions. The people of Jerusalem were not the victims of tragedy. They were people in a ditch of a mess of their own making. It was all because of their destruction, all because of their sin that the destruction happened. And after the Babylonians had destroyed Jerusalem, Jer- Jeremiah laments at what had happened to this once great city. And you can just imagine the hopelessness that Jeremiah must have felt, the hopelessness that, that everyone in that city must have felt. But in the midst of this hopeless situation, and Jeremiah mentioning how grieved he is over this. In fact, verse 19, Remember my affliction and roaming, the wormwood and the gall, my soul remembers and sinks within me. Jeremiah was, was depressed. He was downtrodden because of what would happen in Jerusalem. But in the midst of all of this, in the midst of, of even saying it was their fault that this had happened, Jeremiah then goes on to say, This I recall to mind. Therefore, I have hope. See, even in the middle of a ditch of a mess that they had made, even in the middle of a situation that was all their fault, Jeremiah knew that there was hope, and that hope came, verse 22, from the Lord's mercies, from the Lord's compassions because God is faithful the Lord is his portion therefore he would hope in God what was it that gave Jeremiah hope in the ditch of a mess these people had brought upon themselves what is it that can give us hope when we get ourselves into a ditch of a mess it's this that a new day brings new grace from God a new day brings new grace from God. Now that sounds great, but how can we be sure that a new day brings new grace from God when we're sitting in a ditch of a mess that, that is our fault? Well, it all comes down to trust. One, trust God's great love for you. It says in verse 22, Though through the Lord's mercies we are not consumed. And the first thing that Jeremiah remembers that gives him hope is that despite the fact that they had blown it, God loves them. Now, if you have like a new King James like I do, a King James, um, it says the Lord's mercies. If you have another translation, it probably says something about God's love. And from what I've understood about the the Hebrew word or the the word that's used there, um, the word that's used for mercies, it refers to, well, it refers to God's love, God's covenant love or God's love that he has for the people that he has made a covenant with. And if you go back to the early God taking of the Israelites, God chose them to be his people because he loved them. And God delivered them out of Egypt, Egyptian slavery, because he loved them. God made promises to them because he loved them. God made a covenant with them because he loved them. God gave them the promised land because He loved them. And God did things for them over and over again because He loved them. And the word that's translated as mercies in my New King James, it it is the kind of love that God has for His people. It refers to, I think it's hest is how you would say it, and it refers to God's God's love with His covenant people. 
for modern day time, that would be believers. Those who have repented of their sins and believed in Jesus Christ. This is the special love that God has for those that have called upon his name. And God had already used Jeremiah to remind the people about his love for them. Look at what he said. The Lord has appeared to me of old saying, yes, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness, I have drawn you. Now, this is an awesome message. That that verse is awesome. And part of what makes it awesome to me is that when God reminded them of this, they were not faithfully following him. This wasn't God looking down at the people wholly devoted to doing his will, saying, I love you. This wasn't God looking down at the people that were doing his will, that loved God with all their heart, soul, mind and strength. And God said, I have loved you with an everlasting love and with loving kindness, I have drawn you. No, these are a rebellious people. These are a people disobeying God. These are a people abandoning God and the ways of God. They're violating the covenant they have made with God. And yet to these people, God said, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Now, that is a that's a powerful thought. Because the idea of an everlasting love is that God has loved them from eternity past and He will love them into eternity future. Right? And that, that nothing would ever change that. That God's love for them is really not dependent upon them at all. It's dependent on God and who God is and that God is love. Now for us, here's what it means. It means the same thing. It means that, that God has always loved us. God has loved you long before you were born. Long before you were born on the earth, you were conceived in the mind of God and He knew you and He loved you. And He knows everything about your life. And He knows every decision that you're going to make. And He knows all the mistakes that you're going to do. And He loves you still. Nothing will ever change that. But He also says, with loving kindness I have drawn you. And this, to me, might be the best part. Why did God send Jeremiah and the other prophets to preach and to convict the people, to tell them to repent of their sins and to turn back? It's because he loved them. See, God did not want them to suffer the consequences for their sin. God did not want Jerusalem to be destroyed. He did not want them to be taken away into captivity. So with loving kindness, he sent the prophets to preach. And in loving kindness, he worked in their hearts to make them know that they were wrong. And in loving kindness, he called on them to turn back to me and return from, or return from your sin. He called them and he drew them in loving kindness. For us, every time we stray... And the Lord convicts us. He does it because He loves us. And in loving kindness, what God is doing is He is trying to draw us back to Himself. He is trying to draw us away from the paths of sin and back to the paths of righteousness. And He is doing it simply because He loves us. God's love, it is always based upon God. It's not on our performance. It's not upon our goodness. That's why Romans says that while we were yet sinners, God loved us. I want to show you a passage that I think does a great job of showing how tremendous God's love for us is. Now hold your fingers here, but turn to Romans 8, verse 35, page 863.
Romans 8 and 35. Who or what shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress, persecution, famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? As it is written, we are killed all day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. You know, the fact of life is that tribulation and trials, they come to us all. Sometimes they come to us because we live in a fallen, sin-cursed world where bad things happen. Sometimes they come to us because they're our fault. Sometimes we bring the troubles and the tribulations into our own lives. Paul's point is, in the midst of troubles, whether they're troubles that are part of the circumstances of life or troubles of our own making, they have not separated us from God's love. God's love for us, it remains the same. And I think our, our culture has so abused the word love that we tend to think that love is some flighty emotion that changes with the wind and, and is dependent upon things that we do or that we don't do. Because that's what we see in culture. I mean, how many of us can remember uh, Tom Cruise jumping up on the couch about how much he loved Katie Holmes? <laughs> and is he loving her today? Nope, things have changed. He's moved on now. Right? And we tend to think that's the way love works. Right? Somehow people disappoint us or we disappoint them and they stop loving us. Somehow we disappoint God and God stops loving us. And it's simply not the case. God's love for you and God's love for me. Well, it's not dependent upon us at all. He doesn't love us because we're good. He doesn't love us because we're bad. He doesn't love us anymore when we're good. And he doesn't love us anymore when we're bad. He loves us because he is love. And that's what he does. He, he loves us. And so trial and tribulation, hardships, even ones that are our fault, they don't separate us from the love of Christ. Look at... When he goes on to say all the things that do not separate us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come nor height nor depth nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing, nothing changes God's love for us. God loved you when you were a sinner rejecting him separated from him through your rebellion. And in loving kindness, he drew you to Christ so that you could call out on Christ and be saved. As a believer, God loves you as a flawed believer. He loves you as one who often sins and needs to be corrected. He loves you as one who strays and needs to be drawn back. And in loving kindness, he will always draw you back. When I was younger, I thought, that when you blew it enough times, God kind of kicked you to the curb. And over time, I've discovered that's simply not the case. And there are kind of two ideas or two things that changed my mind. One is passages like what we read here in Romans. I mean, if this is really what God's love for me is like, well, then not much I can do is going to change that. Because a believer that struggles and fails certainly has a greater desire for God than an unbeliever who just does not care about God, and yet God loved me as an unbeliever who did not care about Him. God's love for me is not going to change with my life, my actions, my sin. 
Does that mean he's always happy with my life and my actions and my sins? Oh, probably not. But it doesn't mean he doesn't love me. His love for me never changes. He loves us with an unfailing, everlasting love. And the second thing that that really changed my mind was reading the gospel accounts and studying about what happened on the cross. I mean, when you really get into it, what happened to Jesus on the cross was pretty awful. I mean, when you... The the gospel accounts just kind of say he was flogged and crucified. When you really study, what does that mean? What happened in those moments? It is awful. Awful what happened to Jesus. And the Bible says that that happened because of my sin. And that happened because God loved me enough to send Jesus to pay that penalty that my sin deserved. So I got to thinking. If God really loves me enough to send His only begotten Son to die that awful death on the cross for me, I mean, that's just not something you give up on quickly, is it? I mean, a love that strong doesn't suddenly change because I'm not nearly as as good as I might think I am. Or I struggle and fail, or maybe I don't even struggle, I just fail. Now, if God loves me enough to send Jesus to die on the cross in my place, man, there's not anything I'm going to do that's ever ever going to change that. God's love for us is everlasting. So when you blow it, remember that God still loves you. Don't give up when you find yourself in the ditch of a mess that you have made. Instead, remember that new days mean new grace from God and you can be sure of this because of God's great love for you. Go ahead and turn back to Lamentations if you haven't already. So first, you want to trust God's great love for you. Secondly, you want to trust God's control over the circumstances of life. The second thing that gives Jeremiah hope is the fact that God was in control. Through the Lord's mercies, we are not consumed because His compassions, they fail not. Here's what he's saying. The only reason any of us are left alive is because God was merciful to us. The only reason we weren't all destroyed was because God was in control and He prevented the Babylonians from killing us all. And there are other passages in Isaiah and some of the other prophets that say similar things. That because of God, there would be a remnant that was left. Because of God, some would be spared. And the only reason that a remnant was spared and some were alive was because God was in control of the situation. Jeremiah knew that no matter what happened in life, God was always in control. Jerusalem was not a victim of circumstance. Jerusalem was not just caught in the way of a large empire of Babylon trying to expand its power. Jerusalem was indeed destroyed for its own sin. It was suffering the law of sowing and reaping. Galatians says, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, that will he also reap. For he who sows to the flesh... Will of the flesh reap corruption, but he who sows the Spirit will reap everlasting life. Their constant rebellion and disobedience was now reaping a harvest of a just judgment. I mean, and I don't want to, I don't want to belabor the point, but I don't want to minimize the point either. This was their fault. God wasn't being mean. God was being just. And he was giving them what their sins deserved. And, and they knew it. But it wasn't like God was an indulgent father and then suddenly blew up. 
don't know, have you ever known parents like that? Uh, kids do everything okay, and then suddenly the, suddenly the kid crosses a line that he didn't even know was there, and the parent's yelling and screaming like a madman, right? throwing things, kicking and hitting and acting all insane. That's not what happened here. God had been disciplining them all along, trying to draw them back, warning them over and over, this is what will happen if you don't turn. But they refused God, and they rejected His ways. And so they suffered for their sin. It was all their fault. And God allowed them to be conquered by the Babylonians. And God allowed the Babylonians to destroy Jerusalem, the palace, and the temple. God had allowed them to carry the Jews into captivity. But through it all, when all of that was happening, God was always still in control. When we blow it, there may well be consequences for our actions. But God is in control even during the consequences. God does not lose control over the circumstances of our life. No matter what the consequences we're suffering are, God has not lost control. And more encouragingly, God has not abandoned you. He is still there. Still holding you. Still trying to see you through. I love this psalm. It says, The steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord, and he delights in his way. Though he fall, he shall not utterly be cast down, for the Lord upholds him with his hand. Good Christians blow it and end up in a ditch of a mess. That's a fact. But when we blow it, have we fallen to the point that we are beyond recovery? No. Why? Well, according to these verses, it's because God has us in His hand. We are still in His control. I've always likened this verse to when my daughters were younger. Girls, you can plug your ears if you don't want to hear this. Um, But when they were younger and they weren't ashamed to be holding Daddy's hand in public, they would often hold my hand and we went somewhere, walked around the park or something. And sometimes they'd stumble while we were walking along. And they would fall. But there was always something that happened as they stumbled and fell. They didn't fall all the way to the ground to the point they were hurt. Because I I had my hand on them. And I was strong enough to keep them from falling all the way down. And I could pick them back up when they stumbled. Now, sometimes they didn't stumble. Because there were obviously times where the board of education needed to be applied to the seat of learning, so to speak. And they weren't necessarily willing to come when I called, and so I had to take them in hand and lead them to the place that the discipline would take place. And I don't know how your children were, but my girls didn't necessarily always think that was the best idea, and so they would try to to argue and talk their way out of it. And if all else failed, they might fall all the way down, just go dead limp on you. But even then, you know what? They didn't fall all the way to the ground. Same reason. It was bigger than they were. I was stronger than they were. And I was always in control of the situation. I could always pick them back up and set them on their feet and get them to where they needed to go. And you know, we're like that sometimes. Sometimes we're striving as hard as we can to live for Jesus. And we stumble. I mean, Galatians 6 talks about believers who are overtaken in a fault. 
That's not they seek out the sin. That is, they just get overcome by it, so to speak. And that happens. And sometimes we just stumble. And when we stumble, God's still there. And He's still got us by the hand. And He's still able to lift us up and to put us back on our feet and to dust us off and to get us back on the right track. But you know, sometimes we don't stumble. Sometimes we just dive headlong into our sin. We enjoy it and we wallow around in it like a pig in mud. But you know what? Even then, God has us. And even then, God is in control. And even then, God can pick us up out of the mud. He can dust us off. And He can put us back on the right track. He is willing to do whatever it takes to get us on the right track. Now, that doesn't mean there won't be consequences for our actions. Because there will be. Sometimes God will let us suffer for our sin. And sometimes... God will even send suffering into our lives because of our sin. Why does He do that? I want to show you this. This is such a great passage in Hebrews. And He says at the first, And you have not forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as sons. My sons, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by Him. For whom the Lord loves, He chastens, and He scourges every son for whom He receives. Now, just think about that. Why does God allow negative circumstances to come into our lives when we sin? Why does God send negative circumstances into our lives when we sin? Is it because he, He's just out to get us? Is it because He's just angry and going to punish us? No. It is because He loves us. And it is because He wants something better for us. But I want you to to get the idea that God disciplines us because He loves us. Now, there's one idea with this passage that I want to bring out. For whom the Lord loves, He chastens, and every son He receives, He scourges. Here's what it's saying. God disciplines His children. Now, sometimes what happens is people will say, well, I'm a believer in Jesus Christ, that I'm living in a way contrary to what Scripture says, but nothing bad is happening. I'm not reaping what you say I've been sowing. So obviously, God is okay with that. Now, have they found a loophole and they are special citizens that can get away with sin? The answer to that is no. The reality is, just as you don't go through Walmart and spank other children who act ugly, God does not discipline those who are not His children. My friend, if you can live in sin without any discipline from the Lord, it is not because the Lord is okay with your sin. It is because you are not truly a born-again child of God. Secondly, he says, For they indeed for a few days chastened us as seemed best to them, but He for our profit, that we might be partakers of His holiness. Now, no chastening seems joyful for the present, but painful. Nevertheless, afterward, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Now, I like that. No chastening seems joyful at the present. Now, I never once as a kid received a spanking I thought was a good idea. Not once when I was in the army did I have to do a single push-up that I thought was justified. Always 
painful. They always were not things that I liked, but they always taught me something in the end. God's discipline is not always easy. And it is often painful. But there is a purpose for it. That we might be partakers of His holiness. So that afterward it would yield a peaceable fruit of righteousness. Here's what He's doing. He will do whatever it takes to get us off the path of sin and onto the path of righteousness. And it may be that all He has to do is convict us through His Holy Spirit and through the Word and we'll repent and we'll get back on the right track. But if that doesn't work, God will use other means. God will use whatever means are necessary to turn our hearts back toward Him. What we see in Jerusalem is it took the destruction of the city to turn people's hearts back toward Him. God will do whatever it takes in our lives to get our attention, to draw us back to Him. But no matter how bad the consequences are and how uh, how desperate the situation seems, God is always in control of it. And God is always doing what is for our ultimate good. It's never just God's mad and getting you. It is always God saying, I love you too much to let you continue in the path that you're currently on. I want you to turn from your path of sin and turn to a life of righteousness. God's consequences are always to turn our hearts back to Him and to get us on the right track. It's when you're in a ditch of a mess that you have made, remember, That a new day brings new grace from God. And that regardless of what circumstances are going on in your life because of your ditch of a mess, God is in control. So first, we trust God's great love. Second, you trust God's in control of the circumstances of life. And then thirdly, you trust that God is always faithful. Jeremiah says in verse 23 that the compassions are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The faithfulness of God gives Jeremiah hope. Jeremiah knows that the same God that has allowed his people to be conquered is the same God who has always been faithful to his people. God has always done for them exactly what he said he would do. One of the greatest attributes of God is his faithfulness. God is always faithful to his word. I mean, just think about that. I mean, do you know anyone that is always 100% faithful? I dare say you don't. And not even because people don't intend to be faithful. You know what? I can tell you that I'll be at your house tomorrow at 11 to do something. All kinds of things could happen between now and tomorrow that would prevent me from showing up. Not that I wasn't going to come. Not that I just gave you my word and didn't intend to keep it. I could go outside and all the tires on my cars are flat. I have a death in the family. Any, any number of things could happen to keep me from keeping my word. See, that never happens to God. If God says He'll do it, He will. If God says He can do it, He can. And that is true 100% of the time. Now what this means to us when we have sinned and we're in a ditch of a mess is that if God has said it, He will do it. And what I like best about that is this particular verse. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins 
cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's what God has said He will do. That's what God has promised He would do. Now, we use this verse when we talk to unbelievers about their need for Jesus. If you confess your sins, and that's a good verse. You know, when you read 1 John, the context isn't unbelievers for that. That's not a promise necessarily for unbelievers. That is specifically given to believers. So believer in Jesus Christ, when you sin, God will forgive you if you will confess your sin. He'll forgive you of your sin. He'll cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Now see, one of the things that happens in a time of temptation is that the devil convinces us that the temptation is no big deal. Other people do worse. It's just a small thing, right? Nobody will ever find out. And then we bite the apple. We take the bait. And suddenly he flips the script. You're a horrible individual. How could you do that when you claim to believe in Jesus? You just talked to somebody else and invited them to church and now you've gone and done that, hypocrite. Oh, man. And when we start to buy into that, gosh, I am. I'm a terrible, awful, no good person. Satan will say, you really think God's going to keep forgiving you? I mean, if somebody did over and over to you what you do to God, would you forgive them? <laughs> now, if you're me, you're like, oh, no, I wouldn't. Oh, that's bad. And so he tries to convince us that we're too far gone. We've done just a little too much this time. God's not going to actually forgive us and restore us this time. But here's the facts. God has said that if we will confess our sin to him, he will forgive us. And he will cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Now, there's no limitation on that. It doesn't say you confess 12 times or a hundred times or a million times or a billion times if you confess how many times as many times as you need God is faithful to always do what he said he would do and God has said that he would always forgive you if you confess and he'll always cleanse you if you confess you can trust this don't let the devil beat you down into thinking that you're too far gone don't let a friend or a, an enemy tell you that you cannot return to God, that you're too big of a hypocrite, you're too far gone, too much of a sinner. It's all nonsense. God is faithful always to do what He said, and He has said He will always forgive you if you confess your sins. Now let me quickly, before we close, show you my very favorite passage that talks about God's faithfulness to forgive. Turn to Psalm 81. Page 451 in your pew Bibles. Psalm 81. Starting at verse 8. And I think for many of us that struggle with feeling that God has given up on us, that struggle in, in the ditch of a mess. Psalm 81, the left, starting at verse 8 on, is something you should read consistently until it goes deep into your heart. Now look at verse 8. Hear, O my people, and I will admonish you, O Israel, if you will listen to me. So this is God speaking. Here's what God wants from them. There shall be no foreign God among you, nor shall you worship any foreign God. 
I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Open your mouth wide and I will fill it. So here's what God says. I saved you. So I don't want you to worship any other God. Just, just be devoted to me. And if you do this, I'll bless you more and more and more. That's what God says to them. But look at what they do. But my people would not heed my voice. And Israel would have none of me. Now, think about this. Here's God telling him, telling them, if you'll just turn from your sin and be faithful to the God who has saved you over and over again, I'll just fill you up and I'll bless you beyond measure. But the people didn't want that. They wouldn't listen to his voice. They would have none of me. Right. And what that basically means is this. They just said, we don't want what you've got. Right? God, you've promised to bless us, but we don't want your blessings. We've got this own path of life that we're going. We enjoy what happens here. And so, God, we we really don't need you. Why don't you go on over there? Times have changed. We'll do our own thing now. So God gives them over to their own stubborn heart to walk in their own counsel. So here, here's what happens. God gives them what they want. They don't want God. They want to walk in their own counsels. God says, fine, have at it. See how that works for you. See what it's like to do your own thing and ignore me and reject me. And you would think at that point, God would say, let them suffer. Let them eat that. Let it pour down upon their heads. But look at what God says. Oh, oh that my people would listen to me. That Israel would walk in my ways. The people who wanted none of God. The people that God did let go their own way. God's desire is still for them to turn to Him. His desire is still for them to walk in His ways. And even though they said, we don't want you, God, and we don't want what you offer. Look at what God says He would do if they would turn to Him. I would soon subdue their enemies. And turn my hand against their adversaries. The haters of the Lord would pretend submission to him, but their fate would endure forever. He would feed them also with the finest of wheat and with honey from the rock. I would have satisfied you. God says, if you turn to me, I'll fight your battles. I'll see you through. I'll bless you in ways you cannot imagine. But notice it says, I would have satisfied you. See, their sin and their rebellion it was going to keep them from blessings that God wanted them to have. They could still be theirs if only they would turn to the Lord. And that's how faithful God is. God is so faithful that if we start to stray, He'll do what He can to call us back to the right path. And if we say to God in that time where He's calling us back, no, I like what I'm doing and I don't want what you offer, God may well say, then see how that goes for you. Oh, His heart and His desire is still that you and I would turn back to Him. And if we do, He'll fight against our enemies. Bless us beyond measure. Now, I don't know the circumstances in Psalm 81 when this was written. But I know in more than one occasion in the Old Testament, Jerusalem was surrounded by adversaries. Enemies were coming because of their sin. And God would tell them, if even now you would turn to me. And if even now you would repent. I'll take care of them out there. 
If you don't, though, they're coming in and it's going to be bad. But if you turn to me now, I will fight against these that I have sent. And that's great. That is how faithful God is to His people. Right now, if you're headed down a wrong path, and it's building. It's coming. But even now, if you would turn to the Lord, He would forgive you. He would cleanse you. He would help you in your struggles. He would bless you in ways you cannot imagine. You know, if you've blown it, your sin has seriously hurt your relationship with God. It's a fact. But that, that breach in your relationship does not have to continue. God desires that you would turn to Him and let Him help you. If we were to read the book of Judges, we would find this play out over 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 again. They would say, we're going to do our own thing. God would send prophets to call them back and they wouldn't do it. So God would let somebody conquer them. And they would live as slaves for a period of time and they would say, oh God, we love you. Please forgive us. So God would raise up a deliverer who would lead the people out of bondage into a time of prosperity. And then they would forget the Lord and they would rebel. And the cycle repeated over and over again. The thing that stands out, I think it comes with age. When I was a young Christian, particularly a young preacher, what stood out was how many times they sinned. Over and over again they turned from God. Now that I'm older, a little more aware of my own self-righteousness, my own sin, what I'm amazed by is how many times God just forgave them. How many times, despite rebellion and continued rebellion, God would say, yes, I'll save you. Yes, I'll forgive you. Yes, I'll bless you again. What God did for them, He'll do for us. He hasn't changed, not one bit. Jeremiah remembered these things about God. And it gave him hope. Yes, the city had been destroyed. Yes, it was all their fault. But Jeremiah still could hope because he knew who God was. And he knew what God was like. And he knew that God was still his portion in life. Jeremiah's hope was not that Israel would straighten up and fly right. And I think that's a key thing. Jeremiah, his hope there isn't, now we're going to learn and we're going to get it under control. His hope is that God is great. Not that the people will ever straighten up all that great. Your hope today, it can't be in the fact that you're going to straighten yourself out. It can't be in the fact that you're going to fix the problems and make the changes. Because you can't. You've got to have a hope that's bigger than you. You've got to have a hope that's bigger than the circumstances of life. You have to have a hope that is God. God is the source of our hope. God is the object of our hope. Let me close with a quote by an old preacher named G. Campbell Morgan. He said, I remember hearing a very dear friend of mine in a conference say that if the Lord leads us into difficulties, He leads us out. But if we get, get into difficulties of our own making, we have to get ourselves out. I thank God this is not true of my life. This is not what I have found out. Yes, it's true. If He leads me into difficulty, He will lead me out. But if I wander off in my own foolishness, He will follow me. He will lead me out. I found that to be true in my life. If you are in a ditch of a mess and you turn to the Lord, you'll find it to be true in your life as well. 
Let's all stand as our musicians come forward.